This is the Daily Lectionary Comments for September the 24th. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. The people uh, refuse to go into the promised land, though God promises to fight for them. And for that, they get 40 years in the wilderness. And then Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Jesus, having told us that he was here to fulfill and transform the law of Moses, now begins to preach on this fulfilled and transformed law of Moses. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. Now, this story is lifted, I mean, it's, it's a retelling of what, what we learn in Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14. The original plan of God was to take uh, his people from the base at Mount Sinai, which is in Deuteronomy called Horeb, Mount Horeb, uh, and, and essentially having entered into a covenant with them and the tabernacle having been built uh, and, and the stipulations of the covenant having been delivered to the people through Moses to take them directly into the promised land. And of course, the people uh, are afraid and are not trusting God, even though he has promised to take care of them and to fight for them. And as a result, um, they will not enter the promised land for almost 40 years. And so the, the, the remainder of uh, Deuteronomy, all uh, excuse me, the remainder of uh, of the books of Moses, all the way up to Deuteronomy, we're waiting, we're waiting to go into the promised land. So, now the story itself is simple; it's well known. And uh, so, I don't know. I really didn't know what to say about it, uh, other than I just sort of was thinking to myself, you know, what what do I say about the fact that we have. 38, a 38 year sort of hiatus, a pause in what had appeared to have been a straightforward plan of God to bring him into the, uh, into the promised land. The more I thought about it, though, the more I realized just how very typical this is. God called Abraham and made a promise to, you know, make a great nation out of him and, and settle them in the promised land. But it would be many centuries before that actually came to pass. And in the meantime, uh, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob lived as sojourners in a land that they did not uh, actually uh, uh, occupy and own. And they had this strange um, uh, a journey down into Egypt and into slavery in Egypt. And only after being rescued from there did the plan seem to be kicking into high gear uh, and then uh, uh, another huge pause, as we see in our text today, when it's been 38 years in the wilderness, being disciplined by the Lord. Disciplined in the sense of, of trained and allowing his word to sink more deeply in and to learn to live with this God who is so foreign to us and for whom it is so difficult uh, to, uh, to, to be like him and, and to walk in the ways that are, are the ways of righteousness. So we must be disciplined and trained in this. And so 38 years. But then we find out that after the people get into the promised land, it would be a number of centuries again, uh, almost 400 years after that, before the people would really find peace in the promised land and, and really settle in under, uh, under uh, uh, King David's reign, where uh, the enemies were basically at bay. The people were living in peace. Uh, and under Solomon uh, also, and and that they would be settling in the land more or less the same dimensions uh, and scope as what had originally been promised 
to Abraham long before. But this didn't last long, and it turns out that, that there would be another uh, uh, 500 years or so that we see the people continue to struggle with God, God continue to struggle with them, idolatry continuing to be a problem. We have two, you know, a, a, a split uh, and two massive invasions and an exile. And then only after that do we finally come to the, 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 the chastised people of the book that we find uh, in, in Ezra, where the people are finally getting more serious about focusing on God's word and in a true devotion to him. I mean, this has been many centuries, but it turns out that even after that, it would be another 450 years or so before the, the true sort of culmination of God's plan uh, would arise with the coming of the Christ himself. This is a lot of waiting uh, this is a lot of pausing. This is a lot of disciplining. This is a lot of time that God's people have had to live in a period between God's promises and his fulfillment of those promises. Well, folks, it's, it, it hasn't changed. Today, we still live in a period between uh, God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises. We live sort of, you might want to consider that Human life for a Christian is lived like the Israelites in the wilderness. We are between God's promise of salvation and the actual new heaven and the new earth and the resurrection and the home of righteousness. We live in the hope of these things, dreaming about them, striving for them, knowing that they're going to be ours, but actually having to live in a world that is quite different than the one that God has promised. We are still living betwixt and between what God has promised us and the fulfillment of it. And this is very much what is meant by faith. Faith means we don't yet have uh, all that God has promised, but we do have his promise and we do have the witness that he is faithful and he will do what he has said. So we live in a tension between what God has promised to bring and the actual bringing of it. And trusting in God's promise is an essential element of what it means to be a child of God, whether you are an Israelite uh, stuck in the wilderness for 38 additional years, uh, or whether you are a Christian living in this world, waiting for our Lord's return. Uh, either one way or the other, life with God is a life of waiting on him and trusting in his word. And so it was then, and so it is now. All right, in Matthew chapter twenty, or chapter 5, excuse me, beginning verse 21, Jesus, who came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it, is now going to begin to explain how the law of Moses works in the kingdom of God. In many ways, I want to emphasize what Jesus is about to teach is not new. Jewish rabbis for centuries have been teaching many of these same principles. So it is not as though that Judaism teaches one thing and now Jesus comes along and, te and, and teaches them how to teach their own law correctly. There is in many sense that's true because there were a lot of imbalances uh, and eccentricities that had crept into the interpretation of the law. Jesus is challenging those things. But the, the insights that Jesus is bringing 
are, are not just whole heart, you know, just wholly new things that no, nobody had seen before. He is teaching the true spirit of the law of Moses. And the way he's doing this is that he is focusing not on the issue of justice and how to do this right and how you're supposed to do it and the rights that a person may have and what the law gives to you and where the boundaries are. Instead, he's looking at various issues and looking them as opportunities to to do good to others. So, for example, rather than discussing murder and when a murder happens and you must not murder, he talks about murder and its cousin anger, and he discusses all of this uh, in the context not of the harm that we do to one another, but reconciliation, the good that we do for one another to overcome the causes of anger and murder. Reconciliation is the key for Jesus, and not just for Jesus, but the true understanding of the law of Moses. Also, uh, when we get to uh, the the issue of lust and divorce, now those are side by side, and you can kind of see those as at two ends of a spectrum. On the one hand, uh, a man abuses uh, a, a woman by lusting after her, but he doesn't actually do anything. On the other hand, he abuses the woman much more horribly by acting upon uh, what was in his heart and actually divorcing her. But in either case, the woman ends up uh, uh, really being harmed. And so here, what the man should do is remove these causes for temptation and remain with his wife because anything other than that harms her. The, um, uh, the, uh, his discussion of the Eighth Commandment, um, and you know whether you should take an oath or not, um, that oftentimes would get discussed only in the sense that, well, you can take an oath, but you better not lie, and you better do what you promised that you're going to do, because the commandment says you shall not bear false witness. But Jesus turns that into an opportunity just to be plainly truthful. When he says, don't, don't uh, swear one way or the other, uh, don't swear at all, He's not literally meaning don't swear at all, but he's pointing out that an awful lot of oath-taking is really not meant for the sake of the truth, but meant to bolster and support our own, uh, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we're trying to get across or trying to get that we're taking this oath for. Instead, the people of the kingdom should be in the service of the truth, and the, and the truth should be in the service of helping our neighbor. He talks uh, about uh, uh, retaliation. Uh, but not in the sense of retaliation, but uh, in the opportunity for mercy rather than doing to the other what they deserve having been done, the essence of retaliation. He says, instead, do not resist the one who is evil. Well, so he's replacing hard justice with sweet mercy. And then finally, the whole idea of of love, whether you love your friends and hate your enemies, um, and and uh, and he turns all of this into uh, the whole idea that rather than love being what we typically make of it, and that is love really being self-love. When when I love another person, do good to them because I'm expecting them to love and do good to me back. Um, this whole thing turns love on its head. That means that when I'm doing good for another person, I'm really doing it for my own sake. Well, Jesus, in order to make it very clear that genuine love is not done for our own sake, but for the sake of the other person, he talks about loving even your enemies. 
when you're loving your enemies, you, clearly there's nothing in it for yourself. Um, this is love for love's sake. This is, this is caring about another person for their sake and not because of what's in it for you. And in all these ways, he's turning the question of the law, which we so often turn into a question of what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do and what the boundaries are, as he, he's looking at these same issues as opportunities to do right and to good to others. And in this way, he is talking about a transformed understanding of the law, really the genuine original understanding of the law that is to be for Christians in the new covenant kingdom.